I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, good morning. Still morning, technically, right? 11.18. Good morning, everybody. Today I would like to talk about true equanimity. So a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I gave a talk on the seven factors for awakening, or seven factors to awakening. And when I got to equanimity, right at that last little bit, I was running out of time. So all I really got to say about it was, yeah, it's kind of like a stoic thing, and anyway, let's move on, move on to the next thing. So I wanted to spend uh, the entire talk today on equanimity. But like anything else in the Buddhist path, when you talk about one facet or one particular quality or one factor, you end up talking about a lot of the other things as well. And that's very much the same thing today. But I would hope that as I do this, uh, we can try to keep that lens, that focus, on this quality of, of equanimity. So to start, I'm going to tell you about Grandpa Nunez, my grandfather. So my grandpa is a, a very uh, small and quiet man, even though he's very wise, very smart, and very strong. He is exceedingly quiet, astoundingly quiet. And so it's sort of sad that in that sense, he has this giant family of really, really loud people. Now, some of that's not my family's fault. If you get enough of us together, it's going to be loud. There's just so many of us. He had five kids. A bunch of his kids had kids. Now, those kids are also some of them having kids. It's a whole bunch of people all together. So, my grandfather, generally speaking, can't get a word in edgewise. He's so quiet that once we're actually all together, there have been several times I haven't known he's actually talking to me. I can't tell you how many times I've been standing somewhere at a family party, looking around, taking the whole thing in, and then my dad nudges me. He says, hey, you know your grandpa's talking to you. And I turn, and I didn't even know he was next to me. I'm like, oh, oh, hi, grandpa. And we talk. So because of that, because of his quiet nature and also his quiet voice, he and I actually haven't spoken all that much. We've spent time together, companionably, but a lot of the talking stuff hasn't happened. And so that means that a lot of the lessons I've learned from my grandfather have not usually been through spoken word, they've been through example, which I think sometimes is better. Now, when I was in middle school, after a very long career of my grandfather being, um, you know, a carpenter, a contractor, a handyman, all sorts of stuff, even owns some properties and manages some apartments and things like that, very, does a lot of different stuff. But when I was in middle school, he decided he was going to put some of his money into one project and open up a hardware store. Now, that hardware store is actually doing pretty well even now, and that hardware store still exists, 
and my grandfather, uh, still uh, showing no signs of wanting to retire, is still working at the hardware store a lot. But when I was a senior in high school, I decided I wanted some spending money. You know, I wanted to go out and, and do stuff. Didn't matter that uh, I didn't own a car and I didn't have a driver's license, but I really wanted some spending money because I had a girlfriend and I wanted to, you know, I don't know, buy her some stuff at Taco Bell or something. I don't know, but I wanted some spending money. And so we worked out this arrangement, my grandfather and I, that on Saturdays, my dad would drive me there in the morning and then pick me up in the evening. I'd basically do a whole day Saturday helping out at the shop which, uh, quite frankly, was a, a bad idea because I knew nothing about helping out at a hardware store. Uh, they also made custom cabinets, and I knew nothing about making cabinets. And uh, at the time, my Spanish wasn't all, all that great either, and it's a hardware store in East L.A. So really, I was just there. Um, and so my grandfather uh, put me in the back helping out the guys making the custom cabinets who were pretty annoyed I was there because they all knew how to do everything and I didn't know how to do hardly anything and then there was also this big language barrier. So I ended up getting all these random tasks and one of those tasks they gave me was to uh, sweep outside. You know, back behind the shop there's this big lot where they sell sand and they sell stuff for for cement and they sell all, all these powders and things that fly in the air and get all over all over the place so they said go out and sweep no one told me where any of the actual sweeping materials are you know no one told me where all the brooms were so i go off and find some little rinky dink broom that kind of sweep your your uh you know your bathroom or you sweep your kitchen with or the living room one of those little tiny ones and I'm just working away in this small little corner of this big lot with this tiny little broom trying to clean up the whole place. It just so happens around that time, my grandpa's walking outside and he sees me. And he just kind of shakes his head. He goes back in, comes out with a really big broom. Nice, wide bristles, the whole thing. The kind you're actually supposed to use for this kind of thing. And he hands it to me. He says, use this one. And I said, okay. And I start using it. And he goes, nope, not like that. And so he had to teach me how to sweep. So that was pretty humbling to be about 17 years old and have to be taught how to sweep properly. But apparently I needed to know how. Because I was just working on this tiny little spot. And he goes, this is going to take forever. you got this whole area like this. And he shows me how to do it the right way to cover a huge area. Now, that right there shows some important lessons in Buddhism already, I think. On the one hand, we have this lesson on using the proper tools at the proper time. Now, I think that the Buddha gave us a lot of different tools, all meant to be used for different things, specifically at the right time. And part of equanimity is having that ability to look back enough and have enough of an expansive view to know exactly what tool to use when. But then also, the way we sweep across the mind, across the body, as we sit in meditation, is very much the way we sweep a big lot a big, huge, expansive space. Because quite frankly, if you're just focused on this one little spot with your rinky-dink broom, guess what? It's going to take forever to make any progress. You want to be expansive enough to take the whole thing in and move across the whole space and make it clean, make it pure, make it bright. That's the idea. So my grandfather didn't know that he was teaching me a Buddhist lesson. And quite frankly, at 17, I didn't know either. 
But now I know, because I can look back on that memory and see something important there, something important about equanimity and using the proper tools in the right space. Now, I think the Buddha also taught that way. Sometimes by example, but sometimes with words, but definitely showing the way things are used in the proper time and the proper place. Now, the Buddha did this with his son, so a little different with me and my grandpa. This is the Buddha and his, and his son. But the Buddha did try to teach these kind of things to his son as well. So, there's one particular sutta. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya 62, the greater exhortation to Rahula. And so, at this time, the Buddha is uh, waking up, goes about his day, does his normal things, and then it's time for the alms round. So the Buddha gets his bowl, adjusts his robes, and starts walking to get alms. And Rahula sees this, and he gets his bowl and his robes, and he starts walking. He's walking right behind the Buddha. And at first, it's just companionable silence. They're on their way to Savati. They were at Anandapintaka's monastery. So they're walking to the, to the town. So they're walking through the forest quietly, companionably. And then have you ever had someone say something, just a particular phrase, just sort of, off chance, and it just kind of changes your whole day, kind of wrecks it, your whole plans just stop right there. That's kind of what the Buddha did to Rahula, because they're walking there, and then the Buddha turns back, and he, he turns back and says, Hey, uh, Rahula, any form whatsoever that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every form is to be seen, to be with right discernment as, this is not mine, this is not myself, this is not what I am. And Rahula says, just form, O blessed one? And Buddha says, form, Rahula, and feeling, and perception, and fabrications, and consciousness. And so Rahula stops right in his tracks, and he has this thought, he goes, I mean, when you're given a lesson directly from the Buddha himself, do you really go on and have lunch? You know, no. So he decides he's going to turn around, go back and meditate on what his father, father had said. Now, as he's sitting there and meditating on what the Buddha had said, Venerable Satiputa sees Rahula sitting at the foot of a tree, his legs folded crosswise, his body held erect, mindfulness set to the fore, doing everything properly. And on seeing this, Satiputa says to Rahula, Rahula, develop the meditation of mindfulness of in-and-out breathing. The meditation of mindfulness of in-and-out breathing, when developed and pursued, is of great fruit, of great benefit. And so Rahula nods and listens to Sok, okay. And he says, I'm going to go ask my father about that later. So Rahula, emerging from his seclusion in the evening, went to the Blessed One, went to the Buddha, and he, and he says, how, Lord, is mindfulness of in-and-out breathing to be developed and pursued as to be of great fruit, of great benefit? And so the Buddha starts out with a few different things, but he also starts out with teaching the proper way to understand equanimity. As it turns out, there are at least three ways of understanding equanimity in Buddhism. One way is, is a byproduct of the path itself, a byproduct of actually reaching the fruit of liberation, and that's the kind that we really don't focus on because that one will take care of itself. But there's two others that we, we concern ourselves with. 
One is a sort of day-to-day -day, uh, day -day equanimity that we, that we use as we interact with others. And the other one is the kind we develop in meditation. And they're, in some ways, uh, two sides of the same coin, but in, they have uh, subtle differences that I'll try to cover. But in, the, in this first place, the Buddha talks about the elements. He says, Rahula, develop meditation in tune with earth. For when you are developing the meditation in tune with earth, agreeable and disagreeable, sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean or unclean on the earth, the earth is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted by it. In that same way, when you are developing the meditation in tune with earth, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. And I think that this is an important distinction that we see here. And the Buddha talks about this in terms of the other elements as well. Meditation in tune with water, meditation in tune with fire, meditation in tune with wind, and in, and in tune with space. But still, there's this, this lesson here to be like those elements and to be able to take in what is agreeable and disagreeable and to do that in such a way that they will not stay in charge of your mind. And I think that when it comes to equanimity, we know this in terms of, of negative mental states. In fact, a, couple, a few weeks ago when I talked about equanimity as a stoic uh, thing, I think, you know, I, I use that as, a, as a, you know, a shorthand because I've studied a lot of Western philosophy, but I think that the common understanding that most people have of stoicism is this, uh, kind of enduring awful things, you know, the, the, the tough guy thing. I, I recognize that recently these days, uh, Stoicism has had a bit of a resurgence, let's say. It's getting popular again. But that popularity seems to be with the real tough guys. It's like, you just gotta, you know, just deal with tough things. You know, sleep on the floor, eat some nails, have a hard time. Things suck and just deal with it. And people think that's equanimity, right? Not really. I, I think that's just being miserable, but just kind of dealing with it, right? But equanimity in this case is is a kind of solidity of mind, a, a, a stable place through which we can observe positive and negative uh, things that arise in the mind, positive and negative qualities. Because we need that spaciousness. We need that solidity. You know, the Buddha brings up the elements all the time in, in different ways. But he always talks about how large and expansive they are. The reason why the, the elements can respond this way to things done to them is because of how big they are. The Buddha talks about, uh, as an example, if you were to put a bunch of salt in a cup, right? How would that cup, a cup of water taste? You know, it tastes salty, it tastes disgusting, it wouldn't be drinkable. But if you had a whole lake and you put a little tablespoon of salt in there, you can still drink the lake, the water's fine, right? Now, the Buddha uses that example in terms of karma. You know, the idea being that if you generate enough good karma in your life, that those little things you worry about, those little bits of negative karma, it's like, ah, I well, didn't open that door for that guy, and I called that guy a jerk. In the scheme of things, if you have enough good karma, it'll, it'll outweigh any of those little bad things you're concerned about. But in the same way, if you're expansive, you're able to take in all the good and all the bad sense impressions that come up in meditation and come up in daily life. 
Another example of this is when we look at the uh, Brahma Viharas. Right? Told you, we ended up covering a lot of ground just by looking at equanimity. But it's because equanimity shows up so many places. Shows up in the seven factors for awakening, but also shows up in the Brahma Viharas. And why? Right? When you look at it, a lot of the time people hear the Brahma Viharas and they think of them as sort of passive feelings. You know, you hear you know, loving kindness or what I usually call goodwill, and you hear compassion, and you hear uh, empathetic joy, and you hear equanimity, and you think, all right, these are emotions, these are feelings that I should try to have for people. They can kind of run in the background all the time, you know? Like they run in the background like your Fitbit or some music in a, in a movie, you know? Someone's talking and there's some soundtrack playing in the background. And the thing is, any of the tools the Buddha gives us always have some kind of action, some sort of duty, some sort of thing that's, that's directed. That's why his instructions for meditation always talk about bringing mindfulness to the fore, using directed thought and evaluation. These are activities, not simply emotional states running in the background, which means that the Brahma Viharas work exactly that same way. When we look at, at goodwill, we understand that it's something that's supposed to be uh, unlimited, universal, and we think again, oh, it's got to be all the time, it's got to be all over the place in every moment. Not really. It's unlimited in the sense that you're able to foster goodwill for everyone you come across. Every, every single person. So you hold no animosity to them. And you're able to also, in that same way, in that sense of having goodwill, be able to foster compassion when you come across the suffering of others and yourself. And empathetic joy when you see the triumphs and successes and the good that happens for others and yourself. And those are actions. Those are things that, that you have to direct the mind to. Things you have to work on every day. And it's not just a passive feeling you have, just a good, warm, fuzzy feeling, like, I hope everyone's okay. But really, in your day-to-day -day life, actually being able to look at the person in front of you and have thoughts of goodwill for them, to have compassion for them, to have empathy for them, and also equanimity, in the sense of not being agitated or irritated. In fact, in this same uh, sutta, the Buddha brings up pretty much everything. He gives his son the whole lesson on all the kinds of meditation. So I would recommend uh, taking a look at this uh, sutta on your own later if you like. This is uh, MN62. And the Buddha says, develop all these kinds of meditation. Uh, develop meditation in tune with water, in tune with fire, in tune with wind, and for the exact reason we said before. Just as space is not established anywhere in the same way when you are developing the meditation in tune with space, Agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will, will not stay in charge of your mind. But then the Buddha also, also says, develop the meditation of goodwill. For when you are developing the meditation of goodwill, ill will will be abandoned. Develop the meditation of compassion. For when you are developing the meditation of compassion, harmfulness will be abandoned. Meditation of empathetic joy. Because when that's developed, uh, resentment will be abandoned. The same thing with meditation of equanimity. Irritation will be abandoned. So irritation might be a translation uh, for this term, but also agitation. Again, we often think of being irritated or agitated by negative mental states. But oftentimes, we don't see how caught up we get in positive mental states as well. 
or at least the things we see as positive, the things that we, we crave and cling to, the things that we desire, the things we run after, the things that we assure ourselves it, once we have we'll be happy. And then oftentimes we get those things and we're still not happy. So there's this issue then of being able to discern those things and to not be irritated by them, to not be agitated by them, to essentially not be worked up by them. In the same way that the earth is solid, in the same way that the wind blows both good and bad, in the same way that water can cleanse both good and bad things and the water can still remain pure, right? At this point, we know that for a fact. We can evaporate the water and distill it again and it's just as drinkable that all the water we've ever had we've ever had in a cup is water that's always existed on this planet pure good to drink yeah you got to do stuff to it but that's the same thing with the mind you got to do stuff to the mind to make the mind pure as well it's the same idea so we want that solidity we want that ability to engage in the world in that way the relationships we have to establish them in that way and that often will lead us into this other way of looking at equanimity as something we develop in meditation. It's as something that becomes solid. It becomes a place where we can actually observe the things going on in the mind. Because we, we get told that all the time, that one of the big things about meditation is being able to observe all the things arising. But the thing is, you've got to actually be able to observe them in a way that's useful. The observation often comes with a lot of clinging or a lot of aversion. Good things come up and you're like, mmm, yummy. And bad things come up and you're like, ah, not that. Right? But those things need to be observed. And some defilements and some hindrances and some things that eventually should be abandoned are the kind of things that just evaporate like smoke upon observing. But you need that equanimity and you also need persistence and energy and a lot of other things for the harder stuff. Because we have to think about the goal sort of like a nugget of gold, right? That's what we're after. Our liberation is like a nugget of gold, and we're after that. But that nugget of gold is wrapped in a bunch of hard rock. And that rock is wrapped around a bunch of branches, uh, you know, root, roots, rather, under the earth. So it's all around all this soil. And the thing is, you want to get to that nugget, but how do you go about it? You have to have tools. You have to have things you can use. You're going to need a shovel to dig through that dirt. When you get to that, you know, the roots, you're going to need a saw or something sharp to cut through them. When you get to that stone, you're going to need a chisel or something to break through it so that you can remove and finally grasp that, that gold nugget. We need those tools. And equanimity ends up being one of the most important ones, right alongside those other factors we talked about a few weeks ago, along, right along those seven factors. Because if we get moved this way and that way, if we get attached, if we get irritated, if we get drawn in, then we're not having enough space enough solidity. So one of the reasons we even approach uh, meditation in terms of calm and concentration is for the sake of equanimity, for the sake of having that space, the sake of, of being able to, to have a place where you can be an island and observe everything moving around, all the churning waters around this island. You want to have that solid space and that big churning sea that is your you know, your body and mind, right? Just all this space to explore, but you need a solid place through which to do it. So when we meditate, we don't want to be sluggish and bogged down. We don't want to be sleepy. But if we get agitated and irritated, every little thing that pops up, 
We're not having that solidity. So equanimity is how we do that. In the same sutta, the Buddha further says, develop the meditation of the unattractive. For when you're developing the meditation of the unattractive, passion will be abandoned. Develop the meditation of the perception of inconstancy. For when you're developing the meditation of the perception of inconstancy, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. And then finally, he gets to the, to the mindfulness of in-and-out breathing. Develop the, uh, the meditation mindfulness of in-and-out breathing. Mindfulness of in-and-out breathing, when developed and pursued, is of great fruit, of great benefit. So I would say that all of these other kinds of meditation we see here, unattra- unattractiveness, inconstancy, all of that, requires enough equanimity to see, to keep that balance. Because if we only, only look at these things without equanimity, we can get caught up. In fact, this is one of the lessons that had to be learned the hard way in the early Sangha in the Buddha's lifetime. There was at one point where the Buddha taught some young monks how to meditate on uh, foulness contemplation, foulness of the body, how gross it is. Like, think of all the pus, and think of all this, and the sinews, and the blood, and all that. And he basically grossed them all out and then went on a retreat. He's just like, I'm going to be back in two weeks. I'm going to go meditate, and when I come back, I'll see how everyone's done. Well, here's the thing. When he came back, he spoke to Ananda, and he says, Ananda, I'm noticing there's a lot less monks around. Well, it turned out that some of the monks had just straight up left, but some had been so despondent at and so disgusted at the foulness of the body that they had taken their own lives. And so for the monks that had remained after that, he taught them mindfulness of breathing as a way to establish something wholesome and good to keep balance. And that's another way of looking at equanimity. We can look at equanimity in, in terms of, of solidity. We can look at it in terms of spaciousness. But we can also look at it in terms of being balanced. The idea that we shouldn't grasp and cling to things, but we also shouldn't be so aversive that we, we deny life as well. And equanimity, the kind that we, we find in solid med- meditative practice, is exactly that, exactly what, the, what we need for those moments to keep us balanced in that way. So, I know, it's a, it's a terrible example. When I first heard about that, I, I was shocked, because we always think of the Buddha as, like, the perfect teacher. How could he possibly make any mistakes? And the thing is, for any other monk, they take that same contemplation on foulness and go, okay, that's because I have craving and clinging, and I, I lust after bodies, so i got to think about something gross so I'm not so attached. That's actually useful. There was uh, some time ago way before COVID, where I had an example of this one beautiful woman that I was at a, I was at a retreat several years ago, and she was, she was very stunning, and I, I kept noticing her, and I, I tried not to, and I'm like trying to look, and I'm not look, trying to look at the pretty lady. But the thing is, that same area where we were in, there was a bathroom off to the side. She went and used it, and there were so many loud noises that came out of there quite alarmingly that I was able to go, yeah, still human, just like everyone else. There's enough foulness for me to break my attachment and just focus on my meditation. Which is not an example, but it's, I think, the exact, exact kind of thing that the Buddha would uh, encourage us to do. Just enough to break attachment. Just enough to break lust. Because all of the path, the reason why equanimity even matters in that sense, is for that same very reason. We have craving and clinging as the things that keep us stuck in samsara. 
And the Buddha tells us that there are three kinds of, of craving, three kinds of clinging. Sensual desire, and then craving for becoming, and non-becoming. And something like equanimity gives us that space and solidity to break away from se uh, sensual desire. And it also helps us break away from unskillful craving and clinging for becoming. And what those monks could have used in that story, uh, the ability to break away from craving and clinging to non-becoming. We have to have that balance, that sort of, of ability to navigate these difficult waters. So, if you've never practiced uh, mindfulness of breathing, at least as it's found in the Pali Canon, there are 16 contemplations, and some people think of them as a kind of paint-by-numbers thing. You go through one, two, three, four, five, six of these contemplations. But the truth is, like anything, like I was saying before, the proper tool in the proper time. And some of these are exactly the kind of things that lead to the equanimity I was talking about, giving you a solid place to establish yourself and observe what arises in the mind. The Buddha recommends that we uh, establish concentration and calm so that we are able to, to calm bodily factors, fabrications, mental fabrications. And then once we've done that, we can become sensitive to the mind. So the instructions, he says, he trains himself. I will breathe in calming bodily fabrications. I will breathe in calming mental fabrications. And it's once we've done that that he gives the training. I will breathe in sensitive to the mind. I will breathe out sensitive to the mind. I will breathe in satisfying the mind. Breathe out satisfying the mind. I will breathe in concentrating the mind. And it's once the mind is concentrated, I will breathe in releasing the mind. Breathe out releasing the mind. So we see that concentration, and in this case, gives strong foundations for equanimity. The ability to find release from craving and clinging enough, just enough, like not completely, because doing that alone would, would take you to uh, enlightenment, uh, take you to, to release, but enough enough release to be able to observe, to be able to see, to look at the things that arise, these qualities, mental and bodily fabrications, and see which ones are worth holding on to for now to be abandoned later, and those that need to be abandoned immediately. And enough space and solidity to do exactly that, to do exactly that as it's needed. All right. So I will end this with the same instructions that the Buddha gave. This Rahula is how mindfulness of in and out breathing is developed and pursued so as to be of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of in and out breathing is developed and pursued in this way, even one's final in-breaths and out-breaths at one's death are known as they cease, not unknown. And I will say then that in that way, we establish the kind of equanimity that is truly useful, a, a useful tool in uh, releasing ourselves from craving and clinging. And then I will, I will end there. Thank you.